No, what's neat to hear is that we're all writing. We're all writing. You know, I'm just thinking of what you've been telling me about books coming out next year. I've got a book coming out next year, and that is so, I want to say, invigorating to hear mm-hmm. we're writing. That's that's like that's like a, I want to do my own little cheerleader chants, <laughs> right? So, anyways, folks, if you haven't clued in, this is going to be a really cool conversation. It's going to be a roundtable, and I have two lawyers with me. <laughs> and it's it's going to be a roundtable, and we're gonna we have Susan Jane Wright and Pamela Donison with me. And welcome to my podcast, JCV Art Studio, Season 4. My name is Joanna, and I am the author of, and I just about forgot the name of my books. That's so bad. I am, because you know why? I'm looking at the rough draft of book four. That's why. The first book, The Unraveling, and Dealer's Child is out now, and Spy Girls is off with my editor, and I'm doing NaNoWriMo. So... That's been a blast. And like I said, I looked and I saw the rough draft of book four that I've been working on through NaNoWriMo. Yesterday, if you didn't catch it, excellent, excellent um, webinar with Hank Philippi Ryan about how to get through the middle of your book when you're um, doing NaNoWriMo. I was madly writing notes. So today, let's talk about today. It's a roundtable discussion about lawyers as protagonists and the hazards and legalities involved with our protagonists having that occupation. Okay. Now, a little bit about Susan Jane Wright. She is a Crime Writers of Canada Awards of Excellence finalist. Her debut novel, Box of Secrets, was in Amazon's top 100 and was at the number three spot in the Calgary Herald bestsellers list, and it then went up to number two in the sec- its second week of release. Now, yeah, I heard a little wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, the second novel in her Evie Valentine series, The Glass Lake, is being released on November 23rd, and I had the good fortune of reading an advanced reader's copy. Yes, Susan, yes. <laughs> now, Susan is a lawyer and an exec was an executive in the energy sector before she became a writer. Her legal career took her from the boardrooms in Calgary to the streets of Beijing. She received the PIA, Public Interest Award for Southern Alberta and the Canadian Law Blog Award for her legal blog, Susan on the Soapbox. Susan, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. And if you're wondering, my headset, I have one of these heads that baseball caps don't sit on properly, and this headset is not sitting on properly. So that's why I'm having to hold one side of it. So, okay. Now, in the opposite corner, just joking, just joking here, Pamela. We have PJ Pamela Donison. And now she has been a writer in one iteration or the other her entire life. She is currently a practicing attorney. She is a former award winning military journalist and acquisitions manager for a division of Harcourt Brace. 
That sounds really, really interesting. I'm just, I'm looking at those words, military journalist. Now, her work has been published in numerous legal periodicals, as well as chapters in three legal anthologies. Her short fiction has been published by the Dillidon, and I'm hoping I'm saying that right, the Dillidon Review and Drunk Monkeys. Pamela's first full-length novel, Death Comes for Christmas, is a murder mystery set in Regina, Saskatchewan, and it's the first in her Camellia Belmont series of 12. Welcome, Pamela. Hi, thank you. Great to be here. I saw your book trailer for Death Comes for Christmas, and I now have a totally different interpretation of what is that classic, classic um, ah, Christmas symphony? The Nutcracker. Yes, I have a totally different interpretation of that now. It's a little bit sinister. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome, you two. This is going to be exciting, Uh, very exciting. Now, I'm hoping our listeners picked up on one difference when I read those bios. For one, it said, Susan is a lawyer and Pamela is an attorney. Different countries, different terminology. So let's get this 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 discussion going. Okay, I'm going to ask both of you this question. Now, I'd like to know the inspiration for your novels and series. I interviewed YA author Jane Baird Warren, and her YA story, How to Be a Goldfish, originally wasn't going to be the novel it turned into. She was inspired to write a story after hearing the 45th American president express his views about gay rights. Now, Shoshona Friedman, she wrote Blood Atonement, which deals with the horrendous abuses from the fundamentalist Mormon movement. So Susan, starting with you, Evie Valentine is a lawyer. What was the inspiration for The Glass Lake? Um, Actually, it was strange in that it came to me just as an image. And I had an image of a little girl in a red snowsuit skating out across a very clear lake. Uh, They're called congelation, congelation lakes, where you can see the ice on top and then straight down to the bottom. So it's like standing on a sheet of glass. And when she's out there, um, she's there with her mother and her twin brothers who are about 10 years old, the ice starts to shake under her feet. And her mother instantly knows something is going on. It's a bad thing. And she has to get them off the lake and save them. But uh, it, it goes deeper. It goes back into kind of corporations, what they're doing when they're trying to do the right thing and it screws up and it turns into the wrong thing. And what do people do when they're in a situation where if you press ahead, you will make a lot of money. And if you stop and pause uh, to fix something that could be disastrous, it's going to hit you in the pocketbook. So it, it starts with an image, but it moves into the whole idea of the forces on corporations to do what they do and what lawyers can do to try and step in there. Okay. All mm-hmm. right. Okay. Now, Pamela, in Death Comes for Christmas. Oh, oh no, I'm jumping ahead. Pamela, I want to know your inspiration for your heroine, Camellia. Now, she's a Phoenix attorney. What was the inspiration for this novel, Death Comes for Christmas? This 
particular, the first in the series um, is really my homage to the prairie. So I grew up all over Canada, sort of, uh, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. And I've also lived in BC and now I live in Alberta. So I'm really trying to just live everywhere in Canada. (laughs) And, you know, the prairies are, are the brunt of a lot of jokes. And for good reason sometimes, you know, but um, there's also a very stark and wistful beauty about the prairies to me. And I wanted to pay an homage to that. Um, Also uh, to shine a little bit of a spotlight on the opioid crisis. So that's the the method of murder in, in my book. And it's everywhere. And I really wanted to point that out to people that it's not um, you know, there's the the stigma, right? That it's some homeless person living under a bridge who's having an opioid crisis. No, <laughs> that's not accurate. So I wanted to just show that it's everyday people, middle class, upper class, and so on, who fall prey to that. And then the subtext of the entire series is to illustrate and expose the mental health and addiction Um, challenges that are rampant in the legal profession. And we touched on that a little bit, Joanna, in our prior interview, but, you know, it's a, it's a serious issue and it's sort of swept under the rug um, because it's not nice to talk about. Yeah. So that's, those, those were my inspirations for this character, uh, you know, for bringing a lawyer in um, was for her to be able to illustrate those things. See, and my oldest daughter, who's a nurse, She was saying to me that one of the things that annoys her is whenever the news report about the opioid crisis, she said they're always showing scenes of uh, marginalized individuals. Mm -hmm. And she goes, it's not just the marginalized, you know, and she said the drugs that people, let's say, in the downtown east side are overdosing on, same drugs are being sold to someone who's living on the like 40th floor in a penthouse, right? It's, it's, it's all over. Yeah. Right. There is no socioeconomic divide. Yeah. Um, The only divide there is who can get, who can access healthcare in order to combat their addiction. So, you know, people who are wealthier can manage it a lot better than people who are marginalized. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Good, good answer. So now in my series, my heroine is a defense lawyer and an ad hoc prosecutor. And as a prosecutor, she cannot investigate a crime. She must remain impartial, present the evidence that has been provided to her by the police. And I would just wanted to throw in so people know that there are times when the Crown Council can reject charges. And I, I remember sending those back. You know, it was no it was no charge because there wasn't enough evidence to charge somebody, to lay counts on an information or an indictment. So now, Pamela, why did you choose to write? You kind of answered this a bit. Why did you choose to write from the perspective of an attorney? And are there any powers that an attorney has? Can they conduct investigations? So I'm writing as an attorney because for one reason, it's what I know, right? Yeah. Because I am one. Um, and I think 
readers and just people in general. I mean, um, legal shows on television are very popular. I think everyone's fascinated with the legal process. I'm fascinated with the legal process. I mean, obviously, I'm not an expert in all fields of law. And when I was listening to Susan talk about, you know, how a lawyer can impact a corporation to maybe do more of the right thing and less of the not right thing. I mean, that's fascinating to me. I want to know about that. So, That's part of why I write from the perspective of an attorney protagonist. And your question regarding investigative attorneys, um, it's it's a narrow sort of niche field, and they work in a variety of roles. So um, both on the defense team, obviously, um, to review evidence and, you know, find witnesses and interview them and and, uh, compile the uh, exhibits and what's admissible, what's not admissible, that sort of thing. And usually um, then they would also work on a plaintiff's team, not necessarily the prosecutor, although the prosecutor may uh, hire consultants and so on. So an investigative attorney could work in that role. But generally, from my bit of exposure to this is they generally work um, either on a defense team in a criminal case or on a plaintiff's team, or they could also work on the on the defense team in like a civil case, like a wrongful death action or, you know, something like that. Um, Often they're hired by by insurance companies. Um, So, you know, who want to know the real details of this person's death. Did they really die of X or did they die of Y? You know, uh, a medical malpractice case, for example, might be one of those cases where you have an investigative attorney. Um, And so they're not on the trial team, per se, like they're not going to be standing up and making arguments. um, And they're certainly not prosecuting, but they would be a support team for those, those other players. Some investigation firms, like what we would call a a private eye, right, or a private investigator firm, some of those firms tout their investigative attorneys. And and the reason is because the investigative attorney has the knowledge and skill set to determine admissible versus inadmissible evidence and how to structure things like depositions, for example, so that you're getting all the, the good juicy details that you need for your case. Cool. <laughs> cool. And I wish I'd known it when I got out of law school, because that's where I would have headed. <laughs> it's interesting. Huh? How about you, Susan? Hearing, like, is it some of it, for me, it's all new, right? So yeah. how do you, hearing all this, is it new? Is it similar? Are you? Uh, it It is new, because as you said, um, the, the whole idea of investigative lawyers is so, not something that I, I think is big in Canada. Yeah. And so, um, uh when you mentioned earlier, uh, Joanna, you were talking about the role of the prosecutor, the ad hoc prosecutor, and how you, you need to remain impartial. And of course, what I'm familiar with more is uh, when you've got the criminal defense team and the criminal prosecution team. And and, and it, like you said, if the prosecution team thinks that they have enough information to bring a charge, they will. Uh, the, the case is at least strong enough on the evidence that it, that it stands a good chance of success. Uh, and the defense team basically has such an interesting role because they are working so hard to make sure that the crown proves its case against the accused. Yeah. So that you know, there 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 are so many things they don't have to do. Yeah. They don't have to. Uh, actually, my husband and I debate this sometimes. You know, why don't they say like why don't they have an obligation to tell the truth? 
Well, that's not the lawyer's job. The lawyer's job is to make sure that his client doesn't get on the stand and lie. But the lawyer's job isn't to make the prosecution's case for him. So it's it's a, it's an interesting you know balance I think yeah. between that all and and what Pamela described does sound fascinating because it it gets you an opportunity to work as a lawyer in a slightly different way than you normally do like you're not on your hind legs and arguing in court but you've prepared a huge whack of information that the 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 counsel can take forward and I mean some of these cases when you're looking at the deposition materials and all that. Good God. I mean, I don't I don't know how they even begin to go through stacks and stacks and stacks like that to say, well, this is what's important. This is what, you know, will just confuse the heck out of the jury. So whatever. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's fascinating. It's neat hearing the the just the two um approaches. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. So now Susan, your character Evie, she's a lawyer. Does she bend the law when she's in a tough situation? Because what I'm finding with my heroine, Jade, I'm trying to have this presence of the law society, I don't want to say breathing over her shoulder, but being very much aware that she could get in trouble with the law society. So I'm wondering with Evie, does she bend the law when she's involved in a tough situation? The thing with Evie is that she's always in a bit of a battle with herself because she believes in the rule of law, but she also believes in justice. Yeah. And so um, um, in, in this the book that I just did, The Glass Lake, there's a scene where she's talking to her partner, Keith, and she's really frustrated that she can't get more information to come out and another investigation to take place. And she says, the law is an ass, you know, which is yeah. what Charles Dickens said. And so he's concerned about that because he knows she tends to push the boundaries harder than he does. And they're all together in a law firm. And the last thing you need as a partner is to have one of your partners be brought before the law society and let alone sanctioned. But um, so what I do, actually, I'm almost becoming more familiar with the rules of conduct now than I did when I was practicing, (laughs) because I was in the the corporate world doing more commercial transactions than in, you know, the other kinds of stuff. But I always check to see whether what she's planning to do is okay, does she have an avenue to take this forward in a legal way? And if not, what is she going to do about it? Yeah. I mean, at one point, she's so frustrated with what she sees as um, a corporate cover-up that she says, I, I just want to take a, a newspaper out and plaster it in the newspaper. Yeah. And and her partner goes just white. And he's, he's <laughs> thinking, oh, my God, you can't do that. And she says, no, no, no I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But he always worries that she might go a little too far. Yeah. And that's because she believes in the rule of justice. And the tricky thing there is that who's making that call? It's her, right? And that's why the courts are important. They they are trained to make these decisions um, of what's right, what's wrong. We don't want vigilantes running around doing their own justice. But sometimes you see a situation, you say, this is just wrong. And the law has let us down. Yeah, good. That's another great answer. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, Pamela, with Camellia... And, um, and American law. Is there, I was wondering, an oversight body for lawyers with respect to their conduct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So okay. every state has their own uh, ethical canon, okay. if you will. And, uh, you know, we're required to adhere to those rules just like 
every lawyer in Canada. Yeah. Um, and the rules are actually pretty similar. You know, both of our systems derived from the English. And so a lot of there's a lot of crossover um, okay. between the two. Um, so I'm licensed in Arizona yeah. and uh, in 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 the Ninth Circuit. And so I adhere to those rules. And my protagonist is an Arizona attorney, because I really don't want to pass another bar exam. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you. That would be horrendous. It's just like a bridge too far, right? Um, So she cannot practice law in Regina, you know, where she finds herself in the first book. But she's there on holidays. So she's just there as a lay person. And what it does allow her though, I mean, just like every other citizen, she can gather evidence, she can analyze it, she can talk to people, and then she can turn it all over as she did in the first book to the RCMP. Cool. Okay. It's interesting how as authors, we or writers, we work situation and and work around it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I have a question now for both of you. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I'm doing NaNoWriMo, NaNoWriMo. I don't know how you pronounce that. Only thing I know is I'm trying to, I'm madly writing, you know, scenes or like images that are coming to me. So the first question for both of you and Pamela, you can, you can answer first. Okay. For my fourth Jade and Sage book. A line of dog. Uh, oh God, you'd think I, I had super powered coffee this morning. A line of dialogue came to me, which was, I know what your witness did. That came to me one day. And I, I think I was brushing my teeth and I thought, I got to use that. Okay. So I, I was thinking about it. And given where this story is taking place, out of literally out of respect for the law, out of respect for the victims, I can't shed a sinister inf- inference on my witness. On my witness, it sounds like this is my own case, given the circumstances of the story and where I have this story coming from. So, are there times when you have thought of a line of dialogue for your character, Camellia, or another character which you could not use because you felt like in good faith, you just thought you couldn't use it. Like I cannot, I will not use this line. I know what your witness did because of the situation. So have you ever had something like that happen? Yeah. I I mean, I think we all do. Um, I've had to dial it back on a couple of occasions. So um, mostly when my critique partners recoil in horror and say, (laughs) oh no, 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 you cannot go there. Um, So generally I try to keep the dialogue realistic. Yeah. Except maybe dialed back a little bit. Um, and not overly bitter or overly sweet because that's that doesn't represent our world either. Um, so I I think from the point of view of of this character looking at the world, there are things that she might say. And I know because I've heard it from other people and I've heard it out of my own mouth that from the outside perspective would be too harsh because we tend to fall into gallows humor. 
And it's part of our defense mechanism, right? It's part of our protection of our of our hearts and souls against some of the things that happen around us. And so I have to dial that back um, because some of the things that she might say probably wouldn't wouldn't endear her to the readers. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay. Because I know, like I said, with I love this line. I know what your witness did, but I thought, no, I can't use that. I can't use it because I know what who, what type of person my witness is. You know, and I just and I'm, poison the well. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of how I feel about some of these lines of dialogue for Camellia. Yeah. Even though she might, if she were my real friend sitting right here, she would probably say those things, but it would poison the well. Yeah. How about you, Susan? Have any line of dialogue or? Something you thought, oh, God, that's good, but I can't use it. I can't use it at, at this, at in this setting. For me, it's not so much the lines of dialogue because uh, the, the situation, I'm, other than trying to make sure that Evie or someone around her doesn't get too profane. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, when she blows a gasket, she'd really like to let loose, but she doesn't. But uh, it's not so much the lines of dialogue as it is the situations that I'm building off of. So with my background in the energy sector, I did a lot of work in the pipeline sector, natural gas pipelines, and natural gas pipelines blow up. And uh, so in this story, the, the, the situation I was thinking about, it builds off of a real situation that happened in California in 2010. And that was a horrendous blast that uh, killed eight people. And so what I what I'm not doing is is ident- and and one of my characters is basically almost in post traumatic stress years later after having gone through that experience. Yeah. So what I was thinking was when I was working on it, I thought I I cannot start getting into the details of that California explosion. People died. People real people lived yeah. through it. Real people suffered through it, and real people remained for life from that. Yeah. So I you can't just say. Yeah. Let's throw that in there and start spouting off about John Smith, who's now, you know, permanently paralyzed or something. Yeah. It, that doesn't work. Yeah. But but one thing that is a reality in the pipeline sector is pipelines blow up. Yeah. When I was working with one big company, one of our pipelines blew up. Luckily, it blew up in the middle of a great big field and um, uh, it, it did tremendous damage, but nobody was hurt. And we were wrecks trying to to deal with that so what happens here is that like i said evie is working on a file that is supposed to do lots of good for the world and she comes across a real problem and she knows what can happen because of her past experience she's aware of these different situations and she's trying to figure out how to deal with that but like i said i can't go back to the real fact yeah. The real place. And, and it's funny, my editor said to me, she said, I was looking for an explosion that was called the San, um, I can't even remember, San Bruno. I changed the name. Yeah. And I said, there isn't one. She was Googling it. I said, you won't find it. Yeah. But I said, it is built off of the horrible things that that company that ran that that pipeline did. Yeah. And so, but I, I won't go use those facts. Yeah. It's, it, it's, in, it's, interesting because it's it's that respect it's that respect for the real people Mm -hmm. who have suffered right that i find i just yeah awesome that's so good to hear it's so good to hear okay another question for both of you and i gotta tell you ladies 
Thank you for helping me with the questions. You made my life so much easier. At <laughs> a time when I'm just like, I'm like, I'm, a, I'm, I'm juggling balls and I'm thinking, you've got to cut back on your podcast, right? <laughs> so yeah, thank you. Yeah, but if, when you're being deposed, it's nice to write your own questions. <laughs> <laughs> so how did your pr profession prepare you for novel writing? Has it helped? or hindered your writing? And Susan, how about you start first? Oh, I think a legal education is a really wonderful thing. I mean, the the, the beauty of law, there, there's so many things that I love about it, but one of the things, the, the basis of law is just rules and people who push the boundaries, who break the law, who are moving things forward. You know, society hasn't caught, caught up to issues like uh, internet piracy and stuff. So what you've got is human nature doing what it's doing, pushing up against the laws that we have as a community think we should observe. And what I'm always interested in, and I still remember this, um, one of my favorite courses which was tort law, is it would tell you a little story. Some poor guys walking along underneath, like in I don't know, 18th century, walking next to an old store in England, and the sign falls off and, and kills them on the sidewalk. You know, and then you're going, you know, it, it's a brewery. And why did the sign fall down? And who's this poor schmuck that's lying on the ground? And, and it's just fascinating to to sort of dig into all that stuff. Yeah. So, yes, it helped a lot. And then, of course, as you take, you know, as you do law, you do a lot of reading and a lot of writing. Now, it's much more boring writing than yeah. legal writing or than <laughs> mystery writing. But the issues are the same. Who did it? Why did they do it? Why did they think they could get away with it? Can they get away with it? You know, are we going to stop them somehow? Uh, and because this is human nature, laws are there and people just go, who cares? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So how about you, Pamela? Um, how did your profession prepare you for novel writing? Well, first, I want to second everything Susan just said, <laughs> um, because it's true. You know, a legal education really does help you um, in so many avenues. But for a novelist, I mean, I have great research skills. Yeah. I know grammar wrong yeah. side out. Yeah. And I know how to organize a story, right? Yeah. Because you have to do that for trial. You have to organize your story and make it snappy and, and not go on and on and on, but, you know, get the right details in. Yeah. Um, and I've had, I think, all my life, that kind of profession. So I was a journalist. Um, I was in the Air Force, and I was a journalist there. Um, and then I was an acquisitions editor for a division of Harcourt Brace. And now I'm an attorney. So all of those jobs, professions, are deeply immersed in a written word. They They rely on it almost extensively and exclusively, right? So I've been preparing for writing a novel since I was in high school, basically. I mean, um, it's it's just writing has just always been there for me. And so regardless of what my profession was, I, I would have ended up being a writer. But having a legal background has really, really helped uh, in so many ways. That's, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I could see it. I could so see it. Because what I find I'm doing is, you know, I worked, I'm not a lawyer. I've worked as a legal assistant. So what I'm doing, though, is I'm having everything, every book I've written, which involves lawyers, there is a lawyer who's a prosecutor who I know that she is my ARC reader. 
you know, and she's reading it and she's pointing things out to me. And the one thing that was really fun, if I could, I'm going to go off on a tiny bit of a tangent here, was in Dealer's Child, when I had one character basically like scoop up my heroine's witness, you know, and it was so neat getting her comments back because I said to her, how serious is this for the Law Society? And, you know, and it's it's those little comments from the editor or your arc reader that make you laugh. And I remember she had written, this is very, very bad. <laughs> you know, and I, yeah, because that's what we want, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm doing research and I'm finding it fascinating, um, you know, reading legal cases and and I don't know if this is actually a real word but I like it fictionizing you know what I'm reading about characters landscape but like I kind of hinted at earlier the law has to be true it has to be correct and it sounds like and maybe we'll go with you first Pamela that you draw on stories from your own experience sure yeah you know, I think everyone does. Um, and every story I tell, no matter what it is, is true. But that doesn't mean it's factual. Right. So what I mean by that is there's always a universal truth right at the core. But the facts that get us to that truth for me, they come from all over the place. So it's like making chili. (laughs) You know, I start with the basics and then I add a little spice from that person that I met that time at the airport. And I add a little dash of that woman that I really didn't like as opposing counsel. And, you know, it's that kind of thing. So I think if someone reads anything that I've written and says, oh, I know who that's about. They're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because it's just not about a person or a situation. It's this amalgamation of right. experiences and ideas. And, you know, you might see a headline or whatever. It it all sort of comes together in the soup. Okay. And and Susan, it sounds like with you, you're drawing upon your own experiences mm-hmm. for base for yeah. Well, actually, uh, I uh, just as Pamela said, I absolutely agree with what you just said earlier about um, uh, the the stories are true but not factual. And the word you use, Pamela, which I really like, is universal truths. So one of the things uh, I was really lucky to experience was um, after I worked at a big law firm doing litigation, I went in-house with a big multinational corporation, a few of them, and that meant lots of travel. So uh, when I was working on files in China or working on files in the U.S. or in Europe, what was interesting to me was although the laws were different, the people were the same. The dynamics behind we want to get this deal done and that guy over there is being a jerk and these two guys on the other guy's team who are supposed to be coming to us with a solution are actually squabbling amongst themselves and we can't get past their animosity for each other. So it, it's the weirdest thing when you're out there and, you know, at, at the end of the day, you're thinking that we're all the same. I just wish we'd figure that out. Yeah. And we're all, some of us are good and some of us are not so good and some of us are downright horrible. Yeah. And and it's the other point that Pamela made, which I really liked, was when you said people who read your work will look at it and say, oh, I know who that is. And I've had someone say that to me. They've said, oh, and then so-and-so was this person. And I thought, well, no, actually, it's not that person. Yeah. Because as, as you said, you put together your people, your characters, 
and they have elements of different people that you really know. And maybe that's the one thing that whoever's talking to you recognizes and say, oh, yeah, 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 I know who Madeline is. I've got her. But it's not like that's the only person I've ever met you know, in my life. And that's why that's Madeline. I mean, there are a lot of people I've met uh, over the course of my life and different elements of the personalities fit into something. And then it's almost like your characters become alive all by themselves anyway. Yeah. You know, you have a situation where you want to do something in a scene and you just can't write it properly because whoever it is that you're trying to move forward doesn't want to go there. Yeah. And you're thinking, this is really bizarre. I'm the one with the pen. <laughs> <laughs> they are just a, pay, a person on in my imagination, but it doesn't feel right yeah. because you've built them up in your mind in a certain way. And it just they're, they're letting you know that, no, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Cool. Okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do something else then. Yeah. Well, that happened with me, with Dealer's Child. I had this, it, I was inspired by a person I knew and I illustrated her. And it was just, um, it was the, how she presented herself. I thought this image fit this character. Mm-hmm. So I said to her, may I because I put some little illustrations in the book. I said, may I use this illustration because you're the inspiration for this character? And she said, yeah, sure. But what happened for me, and that's why I will never do this again, is then um, she started posting photos of her taking her mom out for her birthday and doing things like making cookies. And I was looking at these photos and I'm like, no, this is not (laughs) what Valentina would do. (laughs) And I thought, stop looking. Just like you said, Susan, focus on this person you have created in your Mm -hmm. mind and don't look at her Instagram feed. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, okay. So like I had mentioned, I have a prosecutor read my novels. Um, be also because it's been, oh gosh, it's I'm not even going to guess how many years it's been since I've been at the prosecutor's office, but laws change, procedures change. So, you know, I want to make sure that what I'm writing is up to date compared to what I experienced years and years and years ago. So do both of you stick close to the legal process or do you take some shortcuts for the sake of narrative and let's start with susan um yeah well i try to stay close to the law i think that when people see that the book is written by a lawyer they kind of expect it to reflect the law and and i think that it'd be really awful if you were as a lawyer promoting your book about a lawyer and you're actually telling them things that aren't true in law you know, there, there's enough confusion out there between differences in Canada and the U.S. that people here in Canada believe <laughs> like that they have certain rights they don't or whatever, yeah. that uh, we don't need to add to that confusion. Now, having said that, the the process of law, especially when like regulatory law, you know, pipelines blow up, they're not the, the regulator doesn't give you a decision in four months. You know, it, it takes a long time to sort this stuff out. So I will do I will shorten the, the timeline. And and I keep saying to myself, well, you know, uh, law and order did that for the first hour, half an hour. They have this is the crime. And then the second half an hour, we have the resolution yeah. and nothing works that fast in the real world. But no one would stick with you for, you know, five years later when Evie was now 45. You know, <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. 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 OK. OK. So how about you? How about you, Pamela? Do you- I, I agree. I, I mean, I try to stick to I would never miss 
represent a rule or a statute because it's way too easy to verify for one thing. And for another thing, I just, I, I, that would be disrespectful to my readers, you know, to, to try to pretend about something. And I do try to stick to the reality of law practice as well, without dragging my reader through the tedium that is part of everyday law practice. So for example, I, I show Camellia in the courtroom and I show her in client meetings, but it's only for that snippet just to get that piece of the story out there. And then we move on. Otherwise, as my critique partners have pointed out, it's just too much. Like we don't want to know how you're sorting the evidence or lining up your exhibits. Please stop. You know? Now, in the second book, yeah. there's more police in- involvement. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, a, there's a kind of a big investigation. And so in this instance, I will be sending um, the final version off to the police um, public affairs people to make sure that I've complied with what their process would look like. Because I, you know, I think we sort of generally know if you're not a police person or working in that criminal um, world, we sort of know the process and I can look up the procedures, but you know, the procedures and what really happens are sometimes a little different. So I will be sending it off for a police review. Cool. Good, 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 good. Well, and also, you know, that's our name on that book. Mm-hmm. And like you, I like what you said, you don't want to be disrespectful to your readers. And I just keep thinking, God help me if, if I wrote something wrong, you know, like that, that's my name out there. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Now I had the pleasure of being interviewed on the Douglas Coleman show and its situation in Las Vegas. And I explained that Canadian law and American law is different. And I gave the example of sheriffs. So sheriffs, when I've dealt with them, they're this now sheriffs, they can in Canada, they can do a few things. My involvement with them was in the courthouse where they escorted and transported prisoners back and forth. Okay, they were in the courtroom. Um, I remember, gosh, back, 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 back. One sheriff, oh God, I forgot all about this, an accused had, was being moved from the witness stand to where he was sitting beside his defense lawyer. And he pulled out like a needle and he nailed it into the sheriff. And it was, yeah, and it was during the time of HIV. Mm-hmm. And that sheriff got, you know, taken to the hospital and tested. And it was like, how did this happen? Right. Mm-hmm. So that's where I've worked with sheriffs. Um, now, from what I understand, please correct me, Pamela. I have seen sheriffs in the U.S. where they do investigations. Like they're like a form of police. Is that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So that was one thing I had to explain that was, that was different. And one other case I remember was when a, a gentleman came into the crown office and he just, he looked at me and he said, I have been charged with grand theft auto. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, um, that's the United States. We don't even have that here. That's probably theft over 5,000. I'm sorry, it doesn't sound as glamorous, right? I wish we had something that was more glamorous involving a vehicle, but it's it's all to do with the money number, right? Like the number, the dollars. So how do you deal with, and we'll start with Susan, the differences in Canadian law versus American and this this was a good point you had mentioned, Susan, especially given readers are more familiar with American legal terms. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you the vice versa for Pamela later. Yeah. So um, what I do, like with Evie, she doesn't work in the criminal system, which helps. So the issues that come up are slightly different than the, and the words you would use are slightly different. Although one of the things that I did notice, and this came out of my own practice of law, was I was working with uh, some executives. This was when I was in litigation. Uh, and these executives were executives of a Canadian airline. And one fellow kept calling me counselor, you know. So it's, how are you doing, counselor? What's happening today, counselor? We don't do that in Canada. Nobody calls anybody a counselor in Canada. So I just let him do it. But um, uh, as far as if the issue came up in the story, and and it's a, it's a phrase or an idea, a concept that is familiar, familiar to American readers, like um, uh, someone's being charged with a misdemeanor or a felony, I would have Evie say to someone, you know, yeah, we they call them that, but in Canada they're known as a summary conviction offense or, or an indictable offense. So you just flip it over so that, that the, the people that are Canadians would actually say, yeah, I got that. Uh, although we as Canadians are more familiar with American terms than the vice versa, I think. Anyway, but I'll let Pamela take yeah. that on. Yeah. How, how about you, Pamela, like thinking of your story, she's an attorney on vacation in Canada. Have you, how have you found that um, the differences between Canadian law versus American in the legal terms? Well, I'm trying to just avoid it at all costs. Okay. <laughs> makes sense. It makes good sense. Yeah. But Amelia hasn't yet run up against that. As I said, she's, she was there on vacation and was really acting in, in, uh, the role of a lay person, but she did interact with the RCMP. And I'm going to make a confession that I glossed over the charging of the crimes because I didn't have that insider information. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was desperately trying to finish and I didn't want to spend several months having it vetted. Um, But I, it's not going to just come up in that book. So in my third book, it's taking place in Spain and the, there's a murder that happens again, Camellia's there just on holiday. She's observing, but she gets involved because she can't help herself. And so there, there has to be some interaction with the Spanish legal system and with the police. So that's, one of those areas where I have to do some research, I have to find someone who is either with the police or, or um, you know, a, a lawyer there to review my work. Yeah. And I just think when there's differences like the in the terminology, like grand theft auto versus um, a um, theft over 5,000, <laughs> right? It's it. What's important is the underlying information. And Mm -hmm. so whether we term it in um, 
American speak or in Canadian speak or Spanish speak or however we term it, I think it needs to be true to the story. So Mm -hmm. if Camelia had run across someone who was stealing a car in Canada, she would have had to use that correct terminology. And there's ways to do that. Like Susan said, you just put it into your dialogue. Yeah. You know, just have a quick sidebar of that. And and I think, again, we want to respect our readers. Yeah. We're a more global community now. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to just act like everything came from the U.S. Because yeah. it didn't. Yeah. Actually, and that's an interesting point too, Pamela, because I think people like to read about other places, especially when we got a lockdown in COVID. Right. One of the ways we traveled was we were reading about Spain. We were reading yes. about, I mean, Louise Penny writes about a teeny little fictional town in Quebec. People yeah. love those books, yeah. you know, and, and she has a huge following in, in uh, the States and elsewhere. And she talks about, like, she throws in French words all over the place that I'm sure lots of people don't understand. I mean, my high school French is tested sometimes. <laughs> and and so I think that it adds flavor to the book. Yeah. I agree. I agree. We 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 shouldn't just um, shoot for the lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. We should shoot for the highest common denominator. Yes. Well, I think I've made a note to self. Do not go on a vacation with Pamela's character, Camellia, because there's probably going to be a murder involved. <laughs> and you'll be working. <laughs> you'll be put to work properly. <laughs> oh, okay. So a couple of lighter questions. What's next? What are you two working on now? And Pamela, do you want to start? Well, I sort of alluded to it. I'm I'm trying to finish up. I am finishing up yeah. um, my second novel, which is Death at the Crossroads. And Camelia picks up from book one. She carries on with her law practice. But now she's moving a little closer to her ultimate goal, which is becoming an investigative attorney, going out on her own, having a little bit more freedom and uh, personal autonomy. Because, you know, working in a firm you're kind of at their beck and call and and whatever whims of the senior partners. So that's what I'm working on and getting ready to be in Spain for three months, January oh, cool. through April. And that will be a wonderful experience for Camellia. Yeah. And so I'm using that, uh, those three months to do the research and the footwork um, to get that third novel nailed down because it needs to be authentic so that's fantastic that is that is oh god three months in spain geez well and (laughs) i don't want to sound like a princess so i will tell you that you know i still have a day job and i will be working the day job while i'm there so um but in between times you can bet i'll be beating the streets getting pictures and Mm -hmm. reference material for that third book well i've involved in the writer's studio through Simon Fraser University. And what was interesting is we had a class last night, and that is so important, the logistics, because I know one student mentioned that she had read a book, and it was from someone who didn't live in Vancouver, and they had written that they the character got from Vancouver to the Sunshine Coast in 30 minutes. And she's just like, that's wow. not <laughs> possible. I mean, like out of respect for the author, of course, she didn't say whose book it was, but it, it just hones in. You got to do your research, mm-hmm. right? And like where mine's taking, I went on Google Maps and it said I could get from A to B in 25 minutes walking. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, 
I need to check with someone who lives in this country whether my poor character is going to be tromping through, you know, an industrial park, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or should right. she just get on the bus, right? Yeah. So, okay, Susan, yes. lighter question. What are you working on now and, and what's next? So the third book, which I actually might even have a title for, normally that, that comes last, I'm always flailing around, uh, is going to be called The Dreamstone. And it, it basically focuses on two things. It, it it's, takes Evie out of her comfort zone, but she's working with um, uh, kind of the, the university setting, academia, the backstabbing that goes on there because her professor, who she really cared for, has something bad happens to him. And it crosses over to the whole idea of uh, the new gold rush. And the new gold rush that I'm putting together here is based on on a gemstone called amylite. Now, amylite is a real gemstone. It is Alberta's gemstone, official gemstone, and it's made out of fossilized cephalopods. And and, and the, I mean, there are these things. You know those big spiral shells. These big spiral. This 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 thing fossilizes into a beautiful green and blue and red and you know purple. It's an astounding stone. Yeah. And there's there's always tension between is this thing a fossil now that we will preserve and put somewhere safe, or are we going to chop it up to little bits and put it on the market? So it's uh, what we've got is some people who really want to make a lot of money at this, see an opportunity to do this. And and the other thing I didn't know until I started researching this is that you can actually have cryptocurrency backed with amylite. I mean, this is a bizarre kind of Wild West area that I didn't know anything about. So you've got the old state university setting up against the wild west of this. And she's, she's crossing back and forth between the two of them. And um, so it's, it's going to be quite interesting, but like I said, one of my characters says, uh, you know, these are just fossils. You're, you're flogging snake oil to people. They're just fossils. And he can, can come back and say the great big one that was sitting in the window at one of the jewelry stores in Banff, was stolen and it was worth five hundred thousand dollars. <gasps> they sell these things at Christie's, so it's it's a very interesting, strange um, phenomenon here. And it's not that's not to say that amylite can't be mined elsewhere, but we are one of the few places where you can get the blue and green and violet ones, and and they're they're very rare. That's wild. Yeah, <laughs> who knew, right? And they're beautiful. I actually yeah. have a piece of amylite jewelry. So Do you? You, you, yeah, they are, they are beautiful. Yeah, yeah, they are beautiful. And if you, to be- want, if you want to do a little bit of um, paid, you know, write-off research, let's put it that way, Susan. Yes. Um, the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show every February in Tucson, uh-huh. Arizona is, I think it's the biggest in the world. And uh-huh. it is amazing. And you can see all kinds of beautiful amylite there. Oh, that'd be fantastic. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Thank oh, you for the tip. This is so, oh God, this is so cool. Okay. The last fun question I'm going to ask both of you. Let's start with Pamela. Mocha cheesecake or lemon meringue pie? Lemon meringue all day, every day. <laughs> I love it. And I'm not crazy about super, super sweet stuff. So the tanginess of lemon meringue is my favorite. Okay. Susan, mocha cheesecake or lemon meringue pie? Lemon meringue pie by a country mile. Sky (laughs) high lemon meringue pie. This is a little joke, Pamela, that um, uh, 
both Joanna and I have a reference to lem mile high lemon rank pie in our books. Okay. And oh, there is okay. a, actually, I, I got mixed up. I was saying to Joanna that there, I was referring it to it because I had come across a little cafe in Pennsylvania when we lived there. And my husband said, no, 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 that was just outside of Nanaimo. So I think it's the same place. It's the same place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. See, it, a little a teeny spoiler. When I was able to read Susan's advanced copy, I'm reading it and I read Mile High Lemon Meringue Pie and I'm just like, uh. <laughs> and I keep reading it and I literally started texting her I said Susan <laughs> my characters and what I remember it was outside Nanaimo mm -hmm. we used to live in Lanceville driving to Nanaimo right hand side this rundown little trailer and it had this big big sign of a lemon meringue pie and mm -hmm. I remember our mom I don't think you were there, Susan, took mm -hmm. my, our other sister, Linda and I into this. It's a trailer. It's an yeah. actual trailer. Yeah. And I think I had apple pie because at that age, I didn't like it, but I do now. So <laughs> it, it was, it, it was funny. It was funny to read this. And I thought, wow, we really like our lemon meringue pie. <laughs> <laughs> so for you to say it also, Pamela, that's, mm -hmm. yeah, we, we need to start a club. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay. Well, both of you, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this. I really enjoy this. This has been fascinating. I, I'm learning lots. Oh, we are too. I am too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've learned a lot from Susan and from you too, Joanna. This mm -hmm. has been a great, great little chat. Good. Absolutely true. Okay. Well, have a good day. Okay. We'll see you then. Thank you.